to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of Tuesday's local election results. Then, for our weekly peace segment, we talk with an attendee of the historic Palestinian rights rally held in Washington, D.C. on November 4th. Later on, we get an update from the Save the Burdette Birth Center Coalition. We then hear from Jamaica Miles of all of us about her analysis of the election results in Schenectady. And we finish with a live interview about how you can take advantage of funding available to transform your house or apartment to renewable energy. But first, headlines. The Hart Cluett Museum and the Van Rensselaer Garden Club's 67th Annual Holiday Greens Show will run from November 30th to December 3rd at 57 Second Street in Troy. This year, the show, which will be open from noon to 5 p.m. daily, celebrates the bicentennial of the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, first published in the Troy Sentinel on December 23rd, 1823. That's first ever published. The poem is better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. The city of Albany held a job fair on Tuesday to help ShopRite employees find jobs before the store closes in December. It gave ShopRite employees a chance to learn about employment opportunities with the city, as well as connect them with employment training programs. More than 500 workers are losing their jobs. And for some good news, average gasoline prices in the Capital District have fallen 4.5 cents per gallon in the last week, now averaging $3.65 a gallon. Prices in the Albany area are 18.5 cents per gallon lower than a month ago and stand 29 cents per gallon lower than a year ago. The Times Union reports that Redburn Development wants to convert Kiernan Plaza, once Albany's majestic Union train station on Broadway, into 50 apartments and 15,000 feet of commercial space under a proposal they submitted to the city's planning board. Most apartments would be studios, but one and two bedroom apartments would be built as well. And a preview, local peace groups will hold a rally outside of Congress member Paul Tonko's office at 19 Dove Street and Washington Avenue in Albany this Thursday, November 9th at 4 p.m. to urge him to support a ceasefire in Gaza. A network of 94 organizations are asking Governor Hochul for $32 million in next year's state budget to increase funding and ease staffing problems for 9,000 supportive housing units. Um, the program has not seen a major increase in three decades. Uh, the New York State Supportive Housing Program provides housing for adults who are experiencing homelessness or who are at risk of falling into that status. And that's it for headlines. Okay, and now our first segment. Tuesday, November 8th was Election Day, featuring elections for local town, city, and county offices. We're going to provide a quick overview of the election results. So, Mark. Let's start with Troy. What are the key highlights? Well, Republican City Council President Carmela Mantello became the first woman to be elected mayor of Troy in her third try for the office. 
Uh, she defeated uh, Democratic Rensselaer County Legislator Nina, Nina Nichols uh, after trailing early in the evening. The Republicans will now have a four to three majority on the city council, though Democrat Stu Sue Steele did win for city council president, the seat Mantello presently holds. Mantella overcame a three-to-one enrollment edge by the Democrats over the Republicans, and then the Democrats' 12 years hold on the city's top elected office. Um, she was helped by her, her name recognition as a lifelong Troy resident and politician, while citing her experience in holding down various government positions, even though in reality they were largely political patronage jobs. Um, both Mantello and Nichols ran as relatively centrist candidates, which unfortunately for Nichols resulted in more progressive electoral groups largely sitting out the race. Um, Nichols, for instance, declined to make reform in Detroit Police Department uh, a major issue. Uh, Republicans won four seats in Detroit City Council um, with um, William Kill winning in District 1, Ryan Brosnan in District 2, Irene Sorrento in District 5. Uh, Democrats uh, Katie Span McLaren uh, in District 3 and Aaron Vera District Aaron Vera in District 4 uh, also won. Okay, so that's a lot of updates for Troy. How about the rest of Rensselaer County? Well, in the major countywide race, Republican Kyle Borgolt, uh, a sheriff's department sergeant, was elected sheriff defeating Democrat Brian Owens, a former Troy police chief. Uh, the incumbent sheriff uh, who endorsed um, Borgolt is notorious for his crackdown on immigrants working closely with the federal ICE program. Borgolt says he will continue that policy. In East Greenbush, Supervisor Jack Conway, a Democrat, was elected to a third term. Conway uh, attracted attention last year when he broke with the county Democrats, saying they were ineffective, reactionary, and deferred of a single progressive idea. Conway has been outspoken in his opposition to the Dunn landfill in nearby Rensselaer. In my hometown of Post and Kill, Keith Hammond, the two-term incumbent supervisor, running on the GOP line, was defeated by the Democrat, um, Mr. Russell, despite the GOP's three-to-one enrollment edge. Um, one of the controversial issues in town uh, was the contamination of local wells by the PFOA Forever Chemical. Uh, town officials largely refused to look for the company that was a source of the contamination, with state DEC officials publicly stated it was probably janitors using too much floor wax at the local schools. <laughs> officials instead proposed a $5 million public water system with taxpayers and homeowners picking up the bill. Apparently, it did not go too well with the local homeowners and taxpayers. Um, one exception was Republican Town Council member Eric Wallaber, um, who actually was very active on this issue, uh, and despite a pretty nasty anonymous campaign personally attacking him, a lot of money being spent on that attack, he actually won re-election with the highest number of votes. Um, also, we'll note that uh, the Republicans won the special election for the vacant seat in District 4 of the county legislature, maintaining their a uh, very, very large majority in the county legislature. I'm still thinking about those janitors using so much floor wax at the local school for the PFOA contamination. Yes, we were pretty stunned. And this was the number two person at DEC who said that. 
Okay, so turning to Schenectady and Saratoga counties, what's going on there? Well, Schenectady was pretty um, much went as expected. Basically, Democrats win in the city. Uh, Gary McCarthy cruised to re-election for a fourth term as mayor uh, after narrowly holding off city council uh, president uh, Marianne Porterfield in the Democratic primary. Uh, Democrats have complete control of the city council, and they had three Democratic incumbents, Carmel Patrick, Carl Williams, and Doreen Diderot winning, along with political newcomer Joseph Mancini. Uh, we'll later have a segment with uh, Jamaica Miles uh, analyzing the local election results. Uh, in Saratoga Springs, the pretty fiery three-way race for mayor and commissioner of public safety uh, resulted in, in the incumbents, Democrats, uh, Ron Kim as mayor and James Montecanino, losing to Republicans John Safford and Tim Cole. The Democratic Party in the city largely split in two, running half of them as independents, um, and as a result, that enabled the Republicans to win. Cole, however, the new public safety commissioner, uh, is a registered Democrat and retired FBI agent who led the controversial 2004 terrorism sting in Albany that sent a Muslim cleric and pizza shop owner to prison. The incumbent, James Montecanino, had stirred up a lot of controversy with his ongoing fights with the Black Lives Matter movement in Saratoga. In the town of Moreau, voters tossed out three-term Republican Todd Harris Nearest for Jesse Fish, a Republican running on a Democratic line. He had been the town's former water supervision uh, superintendent. Um, Harris lost favor with voters during the so far unsuccessful fight to stop Saratoga Biochar, a facility that will transform sewer sludge uh, into fertilizer. So there were a lot of contests, actual contests with narrow margins of, of elections in uh, Saratoga and in, in um, Rensselaer County. But then Albany County, pretty much a foregone conclusion in many of the races. Let's talk about those results. Well, it's kind of a foregone conclusion in um, in the city and in Bethlehem. It's a little bit more split in Colony and you know, some of the more rural uh, hill towns. For county executive, Democratic Dan McCoy uh, faced no opposition, and uh, Democratic Susan Rizzo easily won for county controller. Craig Apple, also Democrat, won re-election for, for sheriff without any opposition. Uh, the Democrats certainly rolled and, uh, in the county legislature, maintaining pretty much a 29 to 10 uh, majority uh, certainly in the city of Albany, the race that counts is the Democratic primary. So that was, you know, back in June where all the interest and stuff took place. Um, that, as I noticed, races were far more highly contested in the town of Colony. The Republicans won all the town elections, though the two major parties split in the uh, county legislative uh, races. Um, Bill Keeler uh, easily won a re-election in the um, for mayor of the uh, city of um, Cohoes. Um, however, um, there was a surprisingly pretty high number of write-in votes 
including for the former mayor, Sean Morris, who lost his seat after a felony conviction for campaign fraud. Uh, Councilmember Adam Biggs was able to win re-election on the conservative and working family party lines after losing the Democratic primary. Uh, this is the first time a candidate has won in Cohoes on a third party line uh, in 65 years. So that covers many of the local elections, not all of them, but what about the rest of the state? Well, uh, certainly in New York City, it was a great day for incumbents with every incumbent winning except one uh, in their re-election bids for, for city council. A couple of noteworthy races, uh, veteran Poughkeepsie City Councilwoman and Democrat Yvonne Flowers became the first black woman to be elected mayor of the uh, city of 32,000 people, and she actually won every single ward in the election. Um, Former Republican State Senator Sue Serino won the race for Dutchess County uh, Executive. And in uh, New Rochelle, Councilmember Yadero Reynos Herbert uh, became the first Afro-Latin woman to be elected uh, mayor. Suffolk County, a Republican won for County Executive, a pretty large county, 1.5 million residents. She's been held by the Democrats for 20 years, but the county has been trending to um, GOP in recent years. Thanks, Mark, for that recap. And as mentioned, we'll have a later segment with Jamaica Miles with more details about the Schenectady races. And now we turn a bit to national and international news. On November 4th, several hundred thousand Americans rallied at the White House in Washington, D.C. to call for a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to the apartheid system that Israel has imposed on Palestinians. Tarak Koff, I hope I said that right, an area member of Veterans for Peace, talks with Mark in this recorded segment. For this week's Peace Bucket, we're joined by Tarek uh, Koff, uh, who we've on, had on before. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief of, of Peace and Planet uh, News. He's also a, a member of Veterans for Peace, and he's one of several hundred thousand people who uh, traveled uh, down to the uh, Palestinian rights rally in, in D.C. on, on November 4th, um, probably the largest Palestinian rights you know rally uh, ever in the United States and uh, certainly the largest uh, anti-war uh, rally in recent memory. So, uh, Tara, can you tell us, you know, why you went down and what was the day like? I went down to stand up for the people in, in Gaza for the people in Palestine, in the West Bank, and especially for the children. So I felt it was the least I could do to show up, to go down there and be part of the Veterans for Peace contingent that went down. Uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, the crowd was huge. And uh, that that word is not an exaggeration. It it very possibly I I saw a bit I saw pictures taken from above of the crowd, um, time lapse pictures, and to me it looked like at least three hundred thousand people. It just didn't end, and it was pretty wonderful because there was a sense of solidarity, there was a sense of of purpose, of commitment to the Palestinian cause. And um, it was good. I got interviewed three times by Al Jazeera. 
while I was down there. They saw my Veterans for Peace shirt and they wanted to interview me and they found out I was an American Jewish veteran who, who had been to uh, all through the West Bank with the, a couple of uh, veterans delegations. And uh, yeah, so it was a pretty exciting event. So, Went out so for quite a while. What were some of the people that you met or encountered there or, or signs that, you know, really stood out as sort of different than just your normal event? Hmm. That's a good question. What stood out? Well, there was just so much. Most of, mostly I, I hung out with the uh, Veterans for Peace contingent that people came from all over for this. And um, I met some Palestinian people who listened in on what I was saying to Al Jazeera and came over to thank me for saying that. One fella had a good number of his family killed in Gaza just recently. And he heard what I was saying because I get passionate about it. And uh, he just came over and thanked me. Also, the interviewer for uh, Al, Al Jazeera, who interviewed me twice, once live and once uh, for tape, she seemed to be quite moved by what I said and uh, thanked me. So there were a few people that I met. Uh, mostly, we just were there to be part of it. And we joined the march, and we marched uh, to the White House, well, marched all through the streets, Pennsylvania Avenue, up to, up to uh, Avenue K, and uh, down around to the White House. And you couldn't see the beginning, and you couldn't see the end of the march. The only way it could be seen was from up high. Uh, as far as uh, banners, there were some huge banners. There was huge banners, Free Gaza, Free Palestine, huge Palestinian flags. Everybody had something. Uh, we had a banner. We had three banners. One just said simply in huge letters, it was a 15-foot long banner. It said, what about Gaza? And underneath it said, Free Palestine, Veterans for Peace. Then I'm um, trying to remember the other two. One of the banners, uh, if you got real close, you could probably still smell the tear gas on it because it was it was in uh, the West Bank with us back in 2017 when we carried it in Palestinian marches, different marches, Hebron, Berlin, Nabisala, and got tear gassed and shot out with rubber bullets and some live ammo one time. Uh, and that banner said, US veterans say no in big letters to Israeli occupation, apartheid, and to US tax dollars funding the Israeli uh, military. Just exact words, but it's close enough. Do you get the sense that uh, you know President Biden and members of Congress, particularly in Hudson Valley, were to listening and, and perhaps moved by the huge turnout? In my opinion, President Biden is a war criminal. He ought to be tr tried for war crimes. He's part and parcel of uh, this genocide that's going on. And I put, uh, uh, what's his name, our local congressman uh, in the same boat. 
uh, Milo Naro, is he your congressperson? Milo Naro and and the other one, uh, what's his name? Ryan. Right, Pat Ryan. They're both veterans. They ought to be. Well, then they they don't even know what the word shame means. But if they did, and if they had a real sense of humanity, they, they would be ashamed for supporting this. And Biden is proposing fourteen billion dollars while people are going for is the Israeli military. Fourteen billion dollars. That fourteen billion dollars is going right into the pockets of the arms manufacturers who will be supplying the weapons to uh to so this is a racket. You're taking tax dollars, fourteen billion dollars of our taxes that should go to alleviate hunger, poverty, uh education medical, all these things that people are uh, desperate about in this country that they don't have, $14 billion could do a lot. It's going into the pockets of uh, Ray uh, Tayon, uh, Lockheed Martin, all those arms manufacturers, giving the, the credit to the Israeli military so they can buy weapons. And some of those weapons are going to the settlers. So the settlers can continue killing people in the West Bank, which they do with impunity, with absolute impunity. The Israeli military does nothing. Well, they actually support the settlers because I've seen it. I've been part of it. So, so uh, only it's about just two, deplorable. We only but, about two minutes. We only about two minutes left. So you, you mentioned the Jewish. If you talk to some of your Jewish friends, you know, and they say, "Listen, we have to defend Israel." What Hamas did was unacceptable, killing so many civilians. How, how do you respond to, we need uh, to protect Israel? There is no excuse, there is no rationale whatsoever for killing children the way that Israel is killing children. There's absolutely no excuse. This is, this is they're committing genocide, and they've been doing it for a long time. And when they say that the Hamas attack was unprovoked, give me a break. This is 75 years of provocation, at least violent provocation, humiliation, cutting off people from their land, from their families, the apartheid wall. It goes on and on. And, you, you know, you put people in a pressure cooker like that. You put people in a, in a situation where there is absolutely no hope, no hope. What do you expect? What do you expect them to do? Of course, there's going to be violent resistance. What about the violent resistance from the, from the uh, Warsaw Ghetto? Do you want to condemn that also and say that was unprovoked? You know, so, and there's one other thing I want to mention before I, I finish. People, uh, you know, when you criticize Israel, rightfully criticize Israel, uh, people say, that that's anti-Semitism. You're being anti-Semitic. You know what's anti-Semitic? I'm going to tell you what's anti-Semitic. Fascist Israel is anti-Semitic. Apartheid Israel is anti-Semitic. Genocidal Israel is anti-Semitic. All of that is anti the spirit of Judaic thought. Everything that's good in Judaic thought has is being betrayed by the Zionists in Israel. Absolutely betrayed. So that's why many of us Jews here say, not in our name. This is not in our name. Do not claim that you are doing this for Jewish people. This is anti-Jewish, everything that Israel is doing. Sorry, I get worked up about okay. this. Okay, well, we're I've talking been there. Uh, to Rock Koff. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of Peace and Planet News and a member of Veterans for Peace. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine.
So we do our P segment uh, first time every Wednesday. Uh, we were going to try to cover on Thursday uh, the protests at uh, Congressman Paul Tonka's office, trying to get him to support a ceasefire as part of a national day of action. And then hopefully this uh, Saturday, there's a large uh, rally at the Capitol being organized by the Muslim community uh, starting at noon, and we hope to also cover that as well. But for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlight. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody you meet at the bus stop. And you can find today's stories and ones in the past at mediasanctuary.org. Okay, and for our next story, Jessica Hayek of the Save for Debt Birth Center Coalition joined Elizabeth E.P. Press to discuss the group's continued efforts to keep Samaritan Hospital's birth center, the only such facility in, in Rensselaer County, from permanently closing. Let's hear what they we said. We recently heard the news that the closing of the Burdett Birth Center was delayed. For an update on what this means, a discussion on the results of the equity study that they performed and more, we are joined by birth doula with Albany Family Life Center and one of the lead organizers for the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition, Jessica Hayek. Jessica, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Of course, thanks for having me. So the closing of Burdett Birth Center was delayed. St. Peter's initially planned to close the maternity ward attached to Samaritan Health Center in December next month. So I was curious how and why this delay happened. So on the 30th, we submitted our health equity impact assessment, the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition. And on October 23rd, St. Peter's Health Partners submitted their health equity impact assessment to the Department of Health. And through both of those health equity impact assessments, it was very clear that the community was very much against this closure. St. Peter's Health Partners impact assessment, 98% of those people that responded were against the closure. And most of the people that, that were for the closure were St. Peter's Health Partners employees. And so it's a very clear message to St. Peter's that we do not want this closure, that this closure will cause harm to the community and it's not acceptable. So the delay in, in the closure, I think is in direct response to the community's outrage um, that they're, they're even considering doing this. They have delayed the closing of Burdett, as I read, until the spring of 2024 and no later than the end of June of 2024. There is still the investigation by Letitia James, uh, the New York State Attorney General. But I am interested in hearing what is the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition doing to make sure that this closing does not go forward? 
So we are working tirelessly still to ensure that this doesn't happen. We are engaging the community. We are, you know, utilizing all the resources we have. And the community is not tiring with this, which is which is really profound. You know, this issue has uh, gotten involved everyone from every political realm, from every social realm, from every socioeconomic realm. We have Republicans and Democrats and progressives. It's really an issue that touches everyone. No one is immune from this closing. So St. Peter's is having a uh, virtual open house on um, November 9th, which is this Thursday. And we really need the community to show up for this um, virtually. You can get to that at sphp.com backslash Burdett. And we just really want the community to come out for this and let their voices be heard because St. Peter's is hearing them. You know, we're hoping that they can find funding for this and that that they can find a way to, to keep Burdett open. Now, what is a virtual open house that St. Peter's is hosting? And I hear you calling for people to show up to this event. What could they expect when they log in? You know, we, we think it's very important to show up for this, absolutely, um, and really flood them with real questions from the community. We do expect this to be a highly moderated event. We hoped that St. Peter's would do something like this in person to actually really get real community input. But I think, you know, it's very important to have to have a lot of people show up to this and really get those questions out to St. Peter's, whether they get answered on the virtual open house or not. And it may seem obvious at this point with the amount of work that you've done and the amount of coverage that we've done on the proposed closing of Burdett Birth Center, but from your study and from St. Peter's, their own study, why is it essential to keep this birth center open in Troy, New York? So there's the two main concerns are the preserving the midwifery-led model of care and also accessibility. So, so it, it's impossible to take the midwifery-led model of care that is present at Burdett and simply pick it up and move it to St. Peter's and plop it down there. It's a different culture. The culture is different at St. Peter's. You can get good care at St. Peter's. No one is ever saying that, that you cannot get good maternity care at St. Peter's. It's just a totally different model. So, so you, it's, it's impossible to take what's at Burdett and just make it so at, at St. Peter's. To, to date, we have not gotten any, besides St. Peter's words, we have not seen a plan of action on how the midwifery-led model of care would be preserved and supported at St. Peter's. We have not seen any, any proof of that. Midwives attend over 40% of the births at Burdett Birth Center. They attend 16% of the births at St. Peter's Hospital. The second main point of the health equity impact assessments is accessibility. We are creating a maternity care desert by removing Burdett from this community. And this is not a, a matter of who wants, you know, an, a low intervention birth with midwives. This is just accessibility to maternity care, period. You know, we hear stories all the time of people when we were doing our health equity impact assessment of people who have to travel long, long periods and they wouldn't have made it to Albany when they're coming from rural Rensselaer County and, and Columbia County, they, they would not have made it to Albany. And these are the two things that St. Peter's say they're highlighting in this in this town. So it's, it'll be, we're very interested to see what they have to say. 
St. Peter's is saying they're going to give vouchers to people, but we don't have a plan on what that looks like. We don't have any plan on what that actually means. You know, are these vouchers for buses, for Ubers? That doesn't make any sense. You know, how, how are, how, what is the plan? And that's something we've yet to see. Uh, Jessica, I was wondering if you could just clarify a, a bit of a thing around language. Um, I was talking about St. Peter's Health Partners, and then you were saying going from Burdett Birth Center to St. Peter's Hospital. Could you just clarify the, the language there? So St. Peter's Health Partners is the the larger entity, um, and they um, have purchased Samaritan Hospital. They have purchased Albany Memorial Hospital. Their St. Peter's Health Partners is the umbrella organization. St. Peter's Hospital is the the hospital facility that's in Albany, New York. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Your coalition is up to a lot around organizing to try to keep the Burdett Birth Center in Troy, New York open. You have an action on November 18th planned. You've launched a social media campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about some of what you all are up to that's most important for our audience to hear and get involved in beyond the virtual open house this week, November 9th? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we launched a new campaign yesterday called The Whole Truth. And this campaign is in reaction to St. Peter's Health Partners social media Q&A videos that they're loosely calling fact versus fiction. And we watch those videos and we all wonder that's not the whole truth. They're not, they're not giving the community all of the information they need. So it's a little short-sighted, we feel. Um, so our reaction is the whole truth campaign. So we're addressing um, where we feel their videos fall short. And so you can find that on our on our Instagram, on our Facebook page. Um, and everything is always linked to our website, which is uh, saberdeppercenter.com. Great. One point on that that I read is that their argument has been a bit about how the number of births at Burdett Center is dropping every year since 2013. And they're using that as a way of saying that maybe it's less needed in this community. Is this something that you've heard? And what is your reaction to that? So the overall birth rate across the country is is dropping and, and that that is factual. However, Burnett is still, they're still catching about 900 babies a year over there. So we're, we're saying people are more than statistics. And that's 900 babies, that's 900 community members, that's 900 birthing families that need this resource. So 900 is a significant number still. And you do have an action on November 18th. Is there anything you would like to share with us about that? Yeah, so on uh, Saturday, November 18th, St. Peter's Health Partners is having their annual holiday fundraiser. It's called Kickoff to the Holidays, and that is at Franklin Plaza uh, in Troy. And we are having a gathering outside of Franklin Plaza from 5.30 to 7.30. It's a family-friendly event, and we're billing it No Room at the Inn. Um, this is St. Peter's annual holiday fundraiser, after all. And we really want the donors to know that we want them to fund Burdett Birth Center. It's very suspect that St. Peter's Health Partners has not asked any of their fundraising entities uh, to raise funds for Burdett. So we're actually thinking that this is not about money, that this is about something bigger. And so we would, we're really encouraging the donors to restrict their donations and direct them to, to Burdett Birth Center to fund 
Fund Our Birth Center. So the uh, No Room at the Inn will be taking place Saturday, November 18th at Franklin Plaza, starting at 5.30. That was um, uh, Elizabeth E.P. Press uh, talking with Jessica Hayek of the Save Burdett Birth Center Coalition. You can check out SaveBurdettBirthCenter.com for more information. And you also can check out uh, MediaSanctuary.org for some of our previous segments. And we certainly will be continuing to follow developments. And now we turn back to election results. Uh, Moses Nagel recently spoke with Jamaica Miles, the founder of the group All of Us and member of the Schenectady School Board, about her analysis of the results in Schenectady. As usual, Democrats won every seat in the city. Election results in for Schenectady are pretty cut and dried and not especially surprising. The incumbent mayor won another term. The real race was in the primary in that one. His opponent in the race had tried to use you and some of the other activism in Schenectady as a as a point to run against. So what's your feelings on, on that race to start with? I agree with you when it comes to the election cycle in the city of Schenectady that very much the race is in the primary. Schenectady has been a stronghold for the Democratic Party for quite a few years now. And winning the primary, similar to Albany, just about wins you the seat. Uh, I do think that we had a more aggressive campaign this cycle from both Republican and Democratic candidates in the general election. I saw a lot more flyers. <laughs> I saw, a lot, you know, the, the mailers were um, increased, as were text messages. I got text messages from both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So I, I think that while it's not surprising the results for Gary to hold his seat in the general election, that, again, it was the primary was the place for us to watch and the place where um, more activism was potentially needed if we were going to see a change uh, and that this is the cycle and for it to change is going to require a lot more boots on the ground. And in the city council races, um, also returned mostly incumbents, right? Indeed. I would say that the city council race was interesting for another reason. So the Democratic Party had endorsed four candidates, DeToro, Patrick, Williams, and Mancini. Mancini being the newest to uh, the slate, he was up for election, first-time candidate, where the other three were running for re-election. But what we saw after the endorsement was that the Democratic Party only ran a slate of three on all of the mailers, on all of the flyers and information and text messages. It showed the mayor and three candidates. It left off Carl Williams. And so Carl Williams still, still did get reelected to office. Again, voting on party lines, um, the fact that this is a strongly held Democratic city, folks are walking into the, <laughs> the voting booth and just voting straight across Democratic party lines. That was um, very likely for Carl to get reelected. Simply on that alone, he did receive the lowest number of votes out of the four Democratic candidates. And it does make me question, is that because 
the Democratic Party, even though they endorsed him, pulled back on their support for Carl Williams. So you're saying he still appeared on the Democratic line on the ballot and had a Democratic endorsement. He just didn't appear in their promotional materials? Correct. And so the party promoted him in the past? Or was that a decision that was made specifically in this election cycle? Carl was promoted in the past as the dem- as the democratically endorsed candidate um, with full support from the party. I, I think it is worth having a conversation with Carl and to ask him, hey, what happened, as well as Democratic Party leadership. If you endorse a candidate and then you don't actually give them the support of the party, why? Right? What happened? And the optics are glaring because the only candidate to not get that type of representation and support was the only black candidate from the Democratic Party. So I think that leads into another question. You know, there's been a lot made of sort of the difficulties that the council has had working together and working with the mayor and some of the divides in the council. Is there anything as a result of this election or the campaigns that says that those things are going to improve or that there's a a path forward? So one of the things that I took away from the interactions of the city council members amongst themselves, as well as with the mayor, is still a glimmer of hope because there was discussion, there was debate, there was no just we're going to rubber stamp the thing that's put in front of us. Um, there was sometimes contentious conversations as well as from a a candidate that is no longer on the city council, John Palmineni, who who pushed and said some very racist things during his tenure as a city council member. Um, With his exit and now seemingly being replaced by Joe Mancini, will that change, right? Because he was just one of the individuals that had some very damning statements during city council meetings. Um, What will Joe Mancini bring to this new city council body, uh, as well as let us realize we want there to be debate. We want individuals to have differing opinions and listen to each other. That's the part that I'm looking forward to is how are they going to hear each other to move forward in a way that's best for all of the residents in the city of Schenectady and not a select few. The mayor has a great opportunity now to start anew, to build bridges instead of fences, uh, and work collectively with the city council that he now is going to have to work with for the rest of his, his tenure as mayor. Your organization, all of us, did a lot of work in the last few months focusing on increasing political engagement by the community and and drawing attention to the number of people that don't vote in in local elections in Schenectady and specifically in the poorer and and more black parts of Schenectady. So what's your analysis of of the effect you might have had on this election or the success you had and how that will move forward? The work that we did was specifically in Hamilton Hill, Vale, and Mount Pleasant neighborhoods where they have historically had a voter turnout between 20 and 25%. These are also majority 
marginalized communities. Individuals um, between Hamilton Hill and Bell have almost half of its members are black and overall 70% of the individuals are people of color. We focused in those areas because of the low voter turnout as well as the low voter registration. This is not work that changes in one year, and I hope that people recognize the need for change and what it takes to create change. We absolutely raise the level of awareness and engagement of individuals, starting those conversations to fight back the passive voter suppression that has existed in our city and across our state. So whether or not there was anyone that showed up differently this year, I, I think it goes without saying that there were people that voted this year that hadn't voted before. There were people that registered to vote who weren't registered to vote. I know that because we took in those voter registration forms or we had individuals take the um, online code to register to vote. So that is movement. Is it enough to create change in one election cycle? No. So voting across the party line, Schenectady remains a democratic city and it's democratically held. Changing what that means for the city is going to take time, and we're going to continue to do that work because we believe the residents of Schenectady deserve it. A lot of the political work you're doing is under the sort of roof of the Democratic Party. I just was curious what you think the effect of, like, the national Democratic Party on the work of local politics. So I would disagree with you that the work that we're doing is largely under the roof of the Democratic Party. Well, the ele um, electoral work. So the work that we do on the ground, while there may be times that it looks like we align with particular parties, as an organization, we don't do endorsements. We don't actually um, support any candidates or particular party. The work is about lifting up the voices of the people to create systemic change. And very often, that may go against any political party and their stance. So as a affiliate and uh, member organization of the Movement for Black Lives, as a local organization fighting for black liberation and an end to all forms of oppression and exploitation, I welcome the opportunity for us to support any legislation or policies that move that agenda forward regardless of who the, the party is. And how do people find your organization if they want to find it? If they are on social media, you can find all of us at Untitled and Free on Instagram and Facebook, or you can send us an email at untitledandfree at gmail.com. And that was Moses' uh, Nagel's interview with uh, Jamaica Miles, uh, founder of the group uh, All of Us. Um, if anything, I would say that uh, Jamaica may have understated some of the uh, racial tensions that have existed within the Democratic Party in Schenectady and, and particularly on the uh, city council. And we will try to provide ongoing courage as the city council and, and the residents work through that. And now we re return to energy-related resources. On Thursday, November 16th at 5.30 p.m., there will be a teach-in sponsored by Capital Region Mothers Out Front, Rewiring America, Green Sanctuary, and other groups to discuss how individuals can take advantage of funding available to transform a house or apartment to renewable energy and to challenge common misinformation and disinformation about the topic. 
We're jo now joined by Janice Kruger of Rewiring America and Elisha Bacon of Mothers Out Front will be joining us in a bit. Janice, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Glad to be here. And glad to have you here. So let's hear a little bit about the uh, about next Thursday's event, including like where it is. Yes, it's a hybrid event. So it'll be online as well as at Albany UU, which is the Universalist Church at 450 Washington Avenue. And uh, what we'll basically be doing is talking about how home households can take advantage of government and utility incentives to update their homes with uh, more with um, ele using electrification. So there are incentives out there at the federal and the state level for people to get energy audits, to insulate their homes, to get better HVAC systems that are um, not uh, based on fossil fuels, but are on based on much more efficient technologies such as heat pumps. Um, and you also can tap into various incentives for solar and geothermal networks. And these say these these incentives are quite significant. Um, for everyone, it's it's thirty percent off um, your tax rebate, uh, tax a tax refund, um, and then for households that fall under low to middle income, there will be a program that will um, provide up to a hundred percent of uh, that will cover up to a hundred percent of the costs of these kinds of upgrades. So this event will basically go over what the incentives are, why you should upgrade your home, and how to go about doing it, as well as, you know, the benefits from it for in terms of public health um, and... Um, well, and let, let, let me jump in here at this point. Sure. So that's sort of a two-part question. Um, one is you say that uh, apartment dwellers, tenants, can also participate in this. I want to clarify that. And and who should, you know, who would benefit from coming to this event? Yes, great question. Um, we welcome everyone. I think renters um, should come and see what would could what they could do to lower their reliance on on fossil fuels. I do admit that the event is more geared towards homeowners because the incentives are um, more geared toward homeowners. Um, but we welcome everybody to come in. There's also going to be a talk by uh, a community solar company that will talk about how you can lower your energy bills by switching to sol a community solar project. So I, this is timely for me because actually yesterday I had somebody come to look at replacing my furnace and he said that um, that the that the heat pumps are are being overpromised. You don't get the savings. They they there's cost to maintain them, and that any electrical heat is more expensive than gas. So is that? I know you've talked about disinformation and misinformation. Is there anything in what he's saying? Because gas at the moment is um, really cost competitive with electricity, you would perhaps not see a reduction in your bills right away. 
but this is also a snapshot in time. So as we go forward with gas prices potentially going up, obviously they can also go down or stay the same. You would benefit if they if the prices go up, which I think people feel like, you know, with the the gas price, the instability of gas prices over time, um, that this would be a good investment overall. It is vastly more efficient to use a heat pump for your HVAC needs um, for both your heating and your cooling because heat pumps do operate for both and they do it very well. Um, so you would also see savings in the summertime. And as we all know, the world is getting hotter, not colder. So um, it is uh, a great time for you to take advantage of these of these incentives the technology is it works it they are they are reliable and they don't have more maintenance than their fossil fuel burning counterparts yeah i'll just note that i have had uh, heat pumps installed in my house air heat pumps and uh I know sometimes, the pol not the politicians, the uh, fossil fuel companies like to argue that it doesn't work in cold weather, and, and that's certainly uh, not true. I see that Elisha Bacon uh, from Mothers Out Front uh, has, has joined us. So I'll throw out a, a question. Um, so you mentioned there's certainly this tax credit, um, and there's also, uh, particularly for lower income people, um, increased subsidies from the state. Are the subsidies enough at this point, especially for maybe more of that moderate income to middle income uh, household? And, uh, you know, is there effort to try to get, for instance, New York State to, to put more money on the table to make it more affordable for the more middle income families, households? Definitely. It's definitely not enough. There is going to be a lot of work that needs to be done to especially target renters, but there is still something going on right now the New York Heat Act, for example, would cap our energy rates and it would essentially create a progressive tax, meaning it would be 6% of your income. Um, so that is one piece of legislation we're hoping will pass. And then another piece is part of the um, Climate Jobs and Justice Package by New York Renews, which includes the New York Heat Act, but also the Climate Superfund Bill, which would put more money into our communities as we try to uh, transition, you know, not just our homes, but all buildings to renewable energy. Um, and in terms of the funding that's available now, uh, this funding is going to reach everyone. So it's really a matter of... Um, people taking advantage of the resources that NYSERDA is putting out there and the resources that the Biden administration has made available. Um, so what are some of the other common misperceptions that you want to um, you know, make our listeners aware to? And can you repeat if people want to join this? Uh, I mean, you can be in person at the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Albany, Thursday, November 16 to 5 30 p.m. But is there a website uh, for people to get more information, we want to join online. Yeah, there is an yeah, event. We got about a minute and a half. There is an Eventbrite link, and you can search neighbor to neighbor, um, green incentives for home improvement. Um, we also have uh, a link that we can provide to you that maybe you can put up on your website to direct people. Um, 
And then additionally, uh, the misinformation, we're going to have a really great speaker, Anshul Gupta, uh, a scientist from IBM, and or I'm sorry, engineer, and he's going to be talking about the myths and disinformation and how people can not only uh, recognize these myths when they hear them, but uh, help people with the tools to respond to them in a way that is meaningful. And so there is a lot of misinformation, you know, last um Last session, we saw, you know, people being scared about Governor Hochul coming to steal their gas stoves. And that's like no one's ripping your gas stoves out of your house. Um, We're talking about new buildings. We're talking about uh, moving forward. And a lot of this is opportunities for people to opt in. So we're not forcing anything on the community. uh, But there's money on the table. And if people want to access that, we're going to let them know, not only let them know how they can, um, but we're going to have the hub of the capital region there who can actually be partners in this journey with them. Well, I, I want to thank uh, Elisha Bacon, Mothers Out Front, and Janice Kruger of Rewind America for joining us uh, today. Good luck with the uh, teaching on Thursday, uh, November 16th. Thank you. Good talking with you both. And Thanks. that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Mark Dunley. Engineer tonight was Captain Kaylin McPherson. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Um, myself, uh, EP Moses Nagel, and our co-host, Rhea Barthel. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift or a monthly donation, at, uh, and you can go to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite broad podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.